0: Evil,
1: science, and magic for
0: Welcome to the CryptoNot Podcast presents Evil Science and Magic Buddies, the show within the show, the conspiracy of the conspiracies, the crypto roundtable. I am Mark Storrs, and with me as always is. I'm Crass. And. Rob Morphy. Thank you all for joining us, and we have a very special guest joining us this
1: week. This is our very first interview, and Robert, why don't you kick it off with. A sweet, sweet intro and bio to our very special guest. I shall proceed. Author, journalist, lecturer, and classic Whovian, Richard Freeman is a working cryptozoologist who searches for and writes about unknown animals. A former zookeeper, Richard soon was promoted to head keeper of reptiles working with more than 400 exotic species from spiders to elephants, but with a distinct preference for crocodilians, a preference that likely fueled or was fueled by his fascination with international dragon lore the melodramatic may call him a monster hunter but they're not too far off the mark as richard has trekked to some of the most far-flung and inhospitable corners of the globe from mongolia to sumatra from thailand to tajikistan which i'm pretty sure is on earth but i can't swear i don't even no, know I, I don't know for a fact with many stops at exotic locales in between in search of creatures such as the yeti the mongolian deathworm the giant anaconda, the Almasti, orang pendek, and the Tasmanian wolf, which by the way is new to me. I'm a Tasmanian tiger fan. We all are. That's a standard, good, great cryptozoological fixture. The Tasmanian wolf, we're going to have to ask about. He has also written books about cryptozoology, folklore, and monsters, including dragons, more than a myth, explore dragons, the Great Yokai Encyclopedia, An A to Z of Japanese Monsters, and Orn Pendek, Sumatra's Forgotten Ape. As if that weren't impressive enough, Richard has recently branched out into horror and weird fantasy with Green, Unpleasant Land, 18 Tales of British Horror. Oh my God. Oh my nice. God, that's brilliant. And and I'm going to completely mutilate this Hayaku Managatari, Tales of Japanese Horror book one. I love it. I'm stoked about that. Currently, Richard is the zoological director for the world's only full-time mystery animal research organization, the Center for Fortean Zoology, which is based in North Devon, England. His latest work is a two-part overview of cryptozoology and a chronicle of his own expeditions titled Adventures in Cryptozoology, the first volume which will be released May 31st in the United States and in mid-June in Great Britain. Jeez. All right,
0: cool. There you have it. Thank you very much. Richard, thank you for joining us. Great to have you on the show.
2: Hello, good evening, and welcome. You yes. got Hayaku Monogatari completely right. Oh, you yeah. <laughs> sort of- Yay, yeah, nailed
1: it. I cannot believe it. You know what? I, I have a little secret. I'm going to I'm gonna let people look at how the sausage is made. I put random hyphens where I think it'll make it easier for me to pronounce words <laughs> because otherwise it becomes a complete mishmash in my mouth and mind. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I consider, I, you know... That's a little tip for anyone else out there that's trying to get through shit they cannot pronounce. That's how you do it. Hyphens. Awesome. Hyphens. Well, that is
0: uh that was quite the intro there, Robert. And yeah, Richard again, wow. thank you for joining the show. Um, like so yeah, let's get uh let's jump right into it and let's get started. So I mean,
1: I'm gonna have to start with the standard initial interview question, yeah. which is what was it, you know, be it in your youth or whenever you got bitten by the bug, that, that first, you know, piqued your interest in the unknown in general?
2: Oh, I can answer that in three words. Classic Doctor Who. Oh, man. Yeah.
1: Nice. Near and dear uh, to all our hearts. Absolutely. Totally.
2: totally. That- I I grew, grew up in the 70s. You see, I was born in 1970. I'm knocking 50. God, to will be 50 next year. It's Jesus.
1: You- <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. We're all old men. We're, we're all oh, yeah. the bearded old men of cryptozoology. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah uh, uh, it started way back in 1963, Doctor Who. And it was very good in the 60s, but it peaked in the 70s. The thing about Doctor Who is everyone thinks it's science fiction, and it is to a certain extent, but it's at least as much about horror as science fiction. It's scary and weird in a way that Star Trek or Battlestar Galactica never was. Yeah. It's gothic edge to it. So in the 1970s with the great John Pertwee who was always my favourite and then Tom Baker later on. You had these bizarre stories giant maggots crawling out of slag heaps on what in Wales and infecting people with this deadly plague. Um, these Lovecraftian tentacled aliens that could project their minds across space and animate children's toys and dummies that will come crashing out of um, shop windows and attack people. There was a great one called the Talons of Weng Chiang set in victorian london and it had giant rats tearing people's legs off down sewers uh opium addicted chinese cultists and a cyborg <laughs> ventriloquist doll with the brain of a pig but uh, <laughs> out into the night to kill people and he'd kidnap prostitutes and bring them back to to his master's lair so uh, his master the villain weng chang could drain the uh, uh, the life essence out of
0: well, all right, yeah. I mean, uh, I started off, uh, I jumped on with Eccleston, actually, and then worked myself forward until about, uh, I think, like Matt Smith era, and then I worked backwards, and then working backwards ever right. since. Well, so. you know, reverse engineering, <laughs> Doctor I, Who. Yeah, I really did. I
1: remember being a kid. It used to play on uh, PBS here, which is just like the the public access, not public access, but like the, the educational station for, for the U.S., and, and I would hear that eerie theremin-esque music playing and and i would both get a chill that would run down my spine but also have the burning desire to run inside and tom baker was my first and and that big and the bravado what because as terrifying as it was and i absolutely agree with you richard it was easily as much about unsettling images and ideas as it was about science fiction and expanding the mind but it really it grounded down with like you say almost love crafty and uh Uh, just appreciation for the unknown horrors that exist, but it was the bravado. Like, I didn't realize that that would become like a standard doctor protocol, but the way Baker did it and the way he owned it, um, that was my first uh, experience with it, and that made me always so stoked, because I'm like, all right, yeah, nothing's safe. A lot of the people around him are going to die, but in the end, his swagger and brilliance is going to make them pull through. Totally. But you also mentioned uh, that you were also a fan of Kolchak the Night Stalker,
2: Yes, that uh, that would be, along with The Prisoner, that would probably be my second favourite TV show. Colchak the Night Stalker was, it only lasted 20 episodes, two TV movies, 20 episodes. It was beautiful. It was a work of art. All of the characters were so well crafted. And Colchak himself, played by Darren McGavin, brilliant. Every week he'd go out and find some sort of monster and his evidence would be destroyed and... His long-suffering uh, editor, uh, Tony Vincenzo, played by Simon Simon Oakland, brilliant. Then the the sort of his camp nemesis in the uh, in the office. Um, yeah, Upton on, on um, Updike. or oh. Updike? Updike. Oh, Ron Updike. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's, still, he's the actor is still around and he still he still gets kudos for playing up character. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, like Miss Emily, the old lady that covered the the flower shows and things. That all these characters were so believable and great oh it's a
1: wonderful ensemble I mean it, to me uh that kind of set the tone for what I wanted the newsroom to be like when I spent some of my earlier years in uh you know local n- newsrooms doing correspondence work and, and and journalism uh it was nothing like that of course but that idea of that office next to a, a elevated train where you know you just hammer in the typewriter and drink coffee and get chewed out by your editor there's something so romantic about it and all of those characters really brought it to life Ignoring completely the fact that each week it was a phenomenal monster or paranormal, you know, event that he had to deal with or extraterrestrial even in a couple. No, and Darren McGavin might be the greatest character actor America's <laughs> yeah. produced. I mean yeah. he was just yeah, totally. fucking Definitely. phenomenal. Definitely. Yeah. I, so yeah, so we're along those same same routes. And so, I remade that. Did you see the remake of that? Un- Holy Unfortunately, yes, and uh the less it's like said like the better. Chicken-
2: Everything that was good about culture at the night stalker. They surgically removed everything.
1: I couldn't agree more. It I was, did not uh, see it. No, I didn't either. No, it was, oh, it was a waste
2: nothing. of digital <laughs> from word. Good. Go. good.
1: <laughs> so, you know, as far as a general appreciation of things, I totally get pop culture. It was like, uh, American shows like in search of that. And, and Arthur C. Clark's mysterious universe, things like that, that I saw as a kid that kind of piqued my interest. But how did you get a specific interest in unknown animals?
2: Well, it just came from this interest in monsters. And I was also very interested in natural history uh, all my life. One of my greatest heroes is Sir David Attenborough, who I hope hope to meet one day. And um, he had a number of series in the 70s. The first major one was Life on Earth. Which right. was about the evolution of life on Earth, and it was just an epic piece of television. And he did a much smaller one, smaller studio-based one called Fabulous Animals, which was all about mysterious creatures. And uh, that sort of added into this this melange, this mix um, that got me absolutely fascinated in monsters. And uh, I became, and when I left school, I went straight out of school and became a zookeeper, and I uh, rose to the head of reptiles. So I've always loved reptiles, particularly crocodilians. And I worked in a zoo for a while, and then so, after that, I was a grave digger for a bit. Oh, oh man. Zookeeper to grave digger. Oh, I there grave you digger. go. I, I'm a bit of a goth as well. When I was younger, <laughs> I was really, really slim. And I had hair like Robert Smith. Black oh. spudgy hair. And I turned 21, and it all fell out. It all fell out. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I got a beer belly. <laughs> I have to go for a sort of grimly fiendish look now. it's actually kind of, oh it's actually God, kind of what, like
0: it's kind of like what Robert Smith looks like right now. It's kind of it's kind of like what
1: Robert Morphy went through too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, there you go. There Early you go. bald,
0: svelte, never. So you go from a zookeeper to a to a grave digger. So then, a, 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 it's a, a
2: great
1: one, resume. You got yeah, perfect. perfect. So I went,
2: really I went off to university because I thought, you know, I'll go and get a a degree, you know, to back up my practical um uh, skills so i went to leeds university in the north of england and i had the the most fun three years of my life but the zoology degree was terrible the books they were using were 30 years out of date even then these professors were making fundamental errors that would embarrass a school child um i couldn't tell the difference between protoceratops and triceratops they thought sauropod dinosaurs lived in water habitually. <laughs> uh, they couldn't tell the difference between a mammoth and a mastodon. They didn't know how many species of crocodilian there were. They didn't know the Latin name of the Tasmanian wolf. Uh, there was one guy there. All he knew about was the morphology of periwinkle penises. That's all he had <laughs> All <he did>. All <laughs> Yeah. I kid you not, you couldn't make it up. Another guy was a le- world's leading expert on dragonflies, but he knew bugger all about anything else. So... Zoology, as it was taught, there, was absolutely lousy. And I, I, I was, I'm still quite suspicious of academia. <laughs> so I, I left the university and uh, how I became a, a full-time cryptozoologist was I was out hunting the beast of Bodmin Moor, which is one of these big cats that right. turn up in Britain. And there was a museum called Potter's Museum of Curiosities, which is sadly now defunct. But it was uh, a collection of weird items. Uh, collected by this Victorian eccentric called Walter Potter. So he would have the head of a man-eating crocodile from India next to a Maori axe, <laughs> next, you know, next to a model of a, a church built entirely out of pigeon feathers. And he'd have um, stuffed guinea pigs playing cricket, <laughs> um, <laughs> stuffed, stuffed squirrels playing cards, all this weird, now, in the foyer of this museum, there was a little magazine called animals and men, uh, it wasn't as rude as it sounded. It was about cryptozoology.
0: <laughs> yeah, because that sounds kind of suspect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. that sounds really rude. I,
2: I, I just brought this magazine on a whim, read it, thought it was quite good, subscribed to it, started to write articles for it, had some phone conversations with John Downs, who's the man who set up the Centre for 14 Zoology, and um, wrote more and more. He said, look, when you finish finished at university, come down and work for me. So the rest is history. I moved down to Devon, which is in the southwest of England, and I, uh, I became the zoological director of the Central Forte Zoology and since then I've been to every continent except Antarctica, hunting for things like the Tasmanian wolf and the ghoul and the giant anaconda and the Ninkinanka and all sorts of bizarre creatures.
1: Well, it's funny that you you know what? First off, I'm gonna I'm gonna give our listeners a quick overview of what's going on here because your travel is extensive and impressive. Uh, you know, I have been lucky enough to have been called a cryptozoologist by the likes of Dr. Carl Shuker and Nick Redferner, who I I, I know you had many interactions with. And, and I'm flattered, but I refer to myself as a crypto historian because I'm the kind of guy that wants a whole lot of comfort and almost as much information. I've been in the field, but you are literally like a personal hero in terms of the oh, shit you it. have managed to put on so i'm just going i'm just going to just read this you know so that people get an idea in 2000 you went to thailand to look for the naga which is this just colossal crested snake like yeah. creature that is you know part of the mythology there but also obviously cryptozoologic right. um you You've been to Sumatra in two thousand three and two thousand four, of course looking for the Oran Pendek to me, and we I'd love to get into that in a second with you, Richard.
2: Five times now. Five times I've gone for the for the Oran Pendek.
1: Yeah, over so how many times again?
2: Five times.
1: Oh my god, that is so Yeesh. that's brilliant. Well, let's let's take oh. let's take a little pause here because as far as I'm concerned, if something can reasonably be expected to be discovered and kind of set uh, you know, the anthropological and the zoological world on its ear, I believe it's the Orang Pendek. To me, there's just such compelling evidence. Obviously, your five-time to Sumatra must indicate a, that you agree.
2: It's a two-horse race. It's the, the things that I'm nearest it to 100% sure out there are the Orang Pendek and the Tasmanian Wolf.
1: Um, so, five times you've gone there. You must have talked to, I don't know, countless eyewitnesses and explored a lot of things. What What is some of the more... Uh, compelling bits of evidence or even eyewitness testimony that you have encountered on your trips to Sumatra?
2: Well, I've found footprints and handprints. I've heard the creature calling. Uh, I I found hair that was examined by Dr. Lars Thomas from Copenhagen University. who's an expert in mammal hair, and he says that it is related to but distinct from the Sumatran orangutan, and he's forced to conclude that there's a, a new species of large primate in Sumatra. Uh, my colleague, Dave Archer, and her, our guide, the late Sahar Dimas, both saw the animal from a distance of about a hundred feet, walking in a tree. It clambered wow. down out of the tree and walked away on its hind legs. Dave describes it as being the size of a large male chimpanzee, but walking upright, very powerfully built, uh, hair very dark, like that of a mountain gorilla, strikingly human looking face, uh, with a brow ridge and um, swept back hair on the head, long arms. And uh, every time I've been out there, I've found more evidence. I've found, I've always found footprints when I'm out there. And I've talked to so many witnesses that have seen this this creature, uh, so many. Um, and our guide, Sahar, had lived in the jungle uh, uh, in uh, Karinchi Sabalak National Park for 14 years, and it was the first time he had seen it when he saw it these days. And he wept when he saw it because he'd been looking for this creature. Oh um, wow, no wow, in geez. India. And Debbie Marta, uh, there was a, an English woman called Debbie Marta, who went over there originally as a tr- uh, travel journalist, uh, and stayed and ended up being head of the Indonesian Tiger conservation group. We spoke to her and she's seen it twice. She's seen the animal twice.
1: That, that's astonishing. Um, now, from your perspective, um, what, what do you think it is? Do you think it is like a, a proto-hominid, a, a, a hominoid? Oh, yeah. I mean, do you have any do you have any theories as to where this kind of fits on the spectrum? Like the No, oh, go ahead.
2: It's the third sorry the fourth extant species of orangutan? Now, um, the Malayan Peninsula, Sumatra, Java, and Borneo were all once one big landmass called Sundar or Sundarland, and on this landmass lived orangutans, and they speciated over 400,000 years ago into the more gracile Sumatran orangutan and the more robust Bornean orangutan. And when the uh, ocean levels dropped and Sundarland was broken up into islands and a peninsula. You had these different species of orangutan, the Bornean on Borneo, the Sumatra on Sumatra. And more recently, there's a new species of orangutan called the Tapanuli orangutan, just discovered 2017. There's only about 500 of them, and the Chinese want to put a, a big dam, hydroelectric dam, right where they live. So I think the, uh, the orangutan death is the fourth living species of orangutan but it's one that is adapted for living on the forest floor rather than being arboreal. Its fur is much darker. It's usually said to be black or grey, dark grey in colour. And it lives mainly on the forest floor. And when you see its footprints and its handprints are very different to the known orangutans. Um, the handprints are more like those of a, of a small gorilla, whereas the orangutan has very long fingers and a very small thumb. Uh, uh, Orangpendek is totally different. Its footprint it has a broad human-like heel, four toes at the front, and then an offset big toe that looks semi-prehensile. So it's not as prehensile as the orangutans' feet. When orangutans come to the forest floor, they tend to walk on the edges of their feet. They have a very strange um, walk, but, but the orangutan deck, Walks habitually upright and on the forest floor. So it's- you
1: think it's more of a uh, a terrestrial branch off? Because a lot of the 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 reading I've done um, has suggested that a lot of people seem to think it's more akin to um, like uh, Homo floresiensis or something like a uh, a more hobbity I mean, type thing.
2: But not I'm- at all. No. Yeah. Now, if you listen, if you listen to the eyewitness accounts, it's way too robust, way too primitive. Uh, Its tool use is, you know, it will use sticks and stones and things, but it doesn't fashion tools. It doesn't make fire like Florissantus did. But, weirdly, in the same jungles where people report the Orang Pendek, they used to report something called the Orang Ardil, which they say was much more human-like. It was smaller than the Orang Pendek, less hairy, had hair on the head, but its body was mainly naked. And they said that they hunted using poison bamboo spears. Now my uh, guide, Sahar Dimas, he said that his father, back in about 1981-82, was in a very remote area of what is now currently like Southlark National Park, and they were trading, him and a friend had gone trading rice for other goods, and they'd made camp, and one of these creatures came out of the jungle and started eating rice from the pot, and Sahar's father, father's father, oh. filled it with a parang which is similar to a mach- machete oh. and he said more of these creatures came out of the jungle and speared his friend to death
0: oh but my god has, shit
2: there's been no reports of these since the eighties. whereas so. around around pendek there were reports every year
1: right that makes you know what now now i'm getting a clear picture because it seems like a lot of the things i've probably encountered were were conflations of these two very distinct and separate things because i had always heard of the yorung pendick using tools and you know poison tip, spears but that absolutely makes a ton more sense
2: the um, yorung pendick it will throw sticks if it feels threatened or, or hurl rocks but it doesn't fashion tools
1: right which is something i guess a lot of primates would do
2: chimpanzees would do that yeah. The diff- one of the differences between apes and hominins is that they both use tools, but apes use objects that they find, sticks, stones, and things, uh, like chimpanzees fishing for um, termites with, with bits of, of grass.
1: Like reeds and whatnot, yeah. no, and, and, But they do not oh, fashion. fashion tools.
2: Yeah, exactly. They don't right. make hand axes or spears or things like that. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah.
1: Now, what about um you said your 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 second or parallel uh belief is in the Tasmanian wolf? Um
2: the Tasmanian wolf, yes.
1: Yeah, now see I'm, I I'm not familiar with this at all. Obviously, everyone knows the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger.
2: It's is the same. It's the same animal.
1: Oh, it is the same animal.
2: Uh, it has many names, the thylacine, the well, Tasmanian then... wolf, the Tasmanian...
1: I am just the an idiot wolf we are talking about the Tassie tiger the thylacine so whether it's the wolf or the tiger it is Well, and wolf makes more sense because they're canine right or or at least part of close to the
2: family it's, it's a flesh eating marsupial it's not related to wolves or tigers it's it's closest to living relative is the tasmanian uh, devil
1: you're just trying to make um, me look bad in really? front of our listeners so, so at this so point it's, aren't it's you it's marsupial yeah.
2: It's interesting. It has a backward facing pouch. Uh, Oh, that sounds cute and horrendous. It's so it doesn't catch the pouch when it's running through the the underbrush. And the males had a pouch as well, and the pouch protected their testicles.
1: Uh, (laughs) Ah, protect your balls at all costs. Got it. That's evolution, baby, right there. How did they not survive on that principle alone? So, uh, protect protect your nose.
2: I prefer calling it the Tasmanian wolf and the Tasmanian tiger because it's evolutionarily. Um, parallel with the wolf and not the tiger. It's only called a Tasmanian tiger because it's got stripes. Right. Uh,
0: oh, gotcha. Right. We'll Face value, looking at it, but guy looks like a tiger, but actually a wolf, uh, wolf with a sweet marsupial sac. It's
2: cool. Pa- parallel evolution or um, or convergent evolution. It's when two animals, often on opposite sides of the world, that are not at all closely related, evolve right. to look like each other because they're. Filling the same ecological niche, you say.
1: Oh, see, um, all right, that, that makes sense. That would delight Darwin to no end. <laughs> yeah, Darwin, Darwin would be Darwin super stoked. Darwin knew all about
2: it. Darwin knew all about this. Uh, there are lots of examples, like mongooses look very like um, stoats and weasels and things, but they're not closely yeah. like They have a similar body plan because they're living a similar uh, lifestyle. You say. Absolutely. Yeah. Huh. So so
1: can you tell us a little bit about some of the, I mean, you've obviously gone there. How many times have you gone to Tasmania?
2: Three times, hoping to go back again very soon.
1: And and what can you tell us along the same lines as Oren Pendick about some of your more interesting experiences uh, and some of the evidence and some of the more interesting reports you received when you were there?
2: I've talked to people, very good witnesses, that have no reason to lie and no axe to grind. And often they'll said they'll only tell you their story as long as you swear not to reveal the place that they saw the creature in because they're worried about it. And I, I talked to uh, an old ex-logger. And he had seen it back in the 1950s. And then his son had seen it just the year before we were there. And he would um, even managed to take some film of one of them. And I saw this piece of film and it showed a dog-like creature uh, around 100 foot away from this camera trap that stands up, and you can see stripes and a long tail, and it turns around and lopes back into the into the forest. Wow. I talked huh. to a guy who was a government-licensed shooter, and he goes out and he, he um, takes down feral cats. Cats are a bleeding menace. Wherever they... <sighs> you get cats, you'll get extinctions. They've been implicated in the extinction of about 28 small mammals, small marsupials uh, in mainland Australia. They totally wiped out the Stevenson's Island Rail. They're a bloody plague. They're one of the few animals that I, I have an actual dislike of. I adore dogs. I can't stand cats. Oh, oh geez. Oh,
0: geez. Look at that. What's oh. funny. Is I'm a huge dog guy. But I recently rescued a cat. Which I love f- cats. W- which is pretty funny because I actually found the cat where I work, and the cat was not feral, but someone had dropped it off, and it was pregnant or whatever. I uh, had kittens and we tried to save the kittens, but it didn't work. But the cat ended up coming home with me. But she is an absolute. She's like like she is like the Richard Ramirez of cats. <laughs> like she kills so much shit and she brings it to our yeah, house. So she's like, they oh, do. dad, look, here's mourning doves. They're like
1: four legged death machines.
0: They are. They, and that's yeah. literally. And I mean. Uh, Yeah, and I've actually, in the whole uh, Australian thing, I just saw, uh, I think, an article about how they were going to be trying to, like, mass hunt some of these cats because they are just wiping out all kinds of... big cats. Yeah, no, 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 these are regular feral, like, house cats. They're just wiping out shit, like, left and right. They Uh, they kill about six
2: million small mammals and birds in Britain alone every year. (laughs) Wow.
1: Yeah, they're they're little vicious predators, but... That's what they do. I mean, dirty, filthy rats, fine. I'm not about black... Plague, tertiary edition. Yeah, but no, no. There's a lot of other like things like, like the poor marsupials that, you know, you kind got to... I, I, I have uh, to say, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I do enjoy my cat. No, I me too. I know. Well, well, the the Richard Rinset, and I are going to be on it. Team Dog. So, no, so, right, okay. so apparently it's going to be a little <laughs> gang war. You, you, you and Richard, me... me and Chris, I'm going to I'm gonna concede early because I'm going to nap. You give but... me a proper yeah, sure. Staffordshire Terrier. And I'm
0: at home, good uh, sir. Ugh, Fair enough. There it is. There oh. it is. Perfect. Anyway, the
2: point is, yeah. this guy <laughs> went, went out shooting feral cats, and he's licensed by the government to do it, and he gets paid to do it. He had seen the thylacine twice. Really? Seen once from a car, and once when he was yeah. on foot. And uh, another guy who ran um, an arboretum and a garden center, he said he was driving between lawn system and hobart which is the capital and he'd seen one of these creatures on a country road and it is running down beside a barbed wire fence and it's looking for a way to get under the barbed wire fence and there were other cars stopping and watching and so this is a multiple witness sighting wow
1: huh interesting
2: so none of those people have anything to gain by lying
1: right that's that's absolutely true animal
2: exists it's not like something like the Loch Ness monster it's a, we know it existed up till the mid-30s and we know that its closest living relative, the Tasmanian Devil, because of all the genetic work that's been done on this animal, the Tasmanian Devil, we know that they can breed back from populations that are very, very low. They only need about 25 individuals, and they can breed back without any inbreeding. Now, Tasmania is about the size of Ireland, but it only has a population of about half a million. Most are in the two major cities. When you get out to the east of the island, there's just wilderness, miles and miles and miles of wilderness.
1: So that negates what a lot of people would say, which is, look at the geographic area uh, of of Tasmania. How could they possibly have gone on, you know, unconfirmed for so long? But what you just said, and that's the thing. People always forget in this hyper GPS world that there are vast swaths, even even on, you know. Is small spaces is, uh, is islands, not that an uh, island the size of Ireland is small. There are vast swaths of uncharted terrain wherein any number of creatures, both presumed extinct and heretofore unclassified, could live. And I'm really glad you pointed that
2: out, Richard. Absolutely. And another great piece of evidence, this is there's a guy called <coughs> Professor Henry Nix. And uh, he developed a computer program called BioClimp. I'm just going to take a swig of cider by all means. Oh, there we go. Yeah, that's better. (laughs) Uh, Bioclimp was a tool for zoologists and what it did, it wanted in uh, all the uh, data you'd got on a certain geographical area, all the data you'd got on a target species and it matched the two together. And it would say where within this, um, geographical area, would you most likely find your target species? For instance, if you wanted to go and look at white rhinos in Botswana, it would say, what's the best place for looking for white rhinos in Botswana? Match it together, and you'd, you'd have your information. Now, as an exercise, he did this with a Tasmanian wolf, and he found out that there was a 98% batch up from where the Bioclim program was predicting that the thylacine should live if it was still alive, and where the sightings were coming from. And he, he said, I mean, I'm completely convinced now that, that, it's, that it's out there. That's and amazing. It's been, seen by, it's been seen by a zoologist, Hans Narding, in 1982. He was over there studying birds, and he saw one of these creatures. He woke up in the middle of the night, uh, heard something moving around, turned his spotlight on, and saw a, an adult male file a sign from 20 feet away. Huh.
1: That's close. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's yeah. no, well,
2: when I was over there, um, I was walking down a very remote trail uh, in the forest in the the, uh, the, the west of Tasmania. Because, I, as, as I said earlier, I think I might have said the east by accident, but it's the west of Tasmania that is very, very um, undeveloped. That's where all the wilderness is. The, the west of Tasmania has got all the forests and the mountains and central Tasmania a bit as well. But it's the east Sorry, the, oh, sorry, I've done it again. It's the west. Sorry, Dude, the west.
1: We're not worried about geography and facts here, sir. You know us west. better. <laughs> no, the I'm kidding.
2: The west of Tasmania that is um, is very underdeveloped. And I was in this particular area, and I was walking along this, this trail in the forest. Now, all the old bushmen that knew the philocyte when it was officially around... and um, most of them are dead now, but they said it had a smell very similar to the striped hyena. And I know what a striped hyena smells like. Which um, is? <laughs> a very distinct, musty sort of smell. Okay. I mean, they,
0: they seem kind of cute. I might be talking out of class here, but <laughs> hyenas, I mean, granted, they obviously are completely deadly, but they seem like they would be kind of, you know,
1: yeah, no, they, if you could tame They seem, on,
0: they seem right? like if you don't
2: value Definitely your face. Hated. If you Spent have hyenas time. from their cubs, you can tame them.
0: Yeah, I see. yeah, yeah. And, and I bet you Rob and Chris won't let me tame a hyena.
2: And despite if... their appearance, they're not closely related to dogs. They share the same ancestors as mongooses and cats, weirdly. Really?
0: Yeah, that, that's
2: see? And Another example of convergent evolution, they look like see? dogs. But you, they're not get,
0: you can get your cat dog, Rob. Ab- hey, I've always been a I fan. I love cat dogs. Yeah, cat dogs rule.
1: But it's it's. I guess it's my love of Egyptian lore that makes me a jackal man
2: deep oh, down. Wow. Oh yeah,
1: but no, that's
0: I neither here yeah, nor there. I know what yeah. you mean Anubis,
2: the jackal-headed god of death. Yeah, one of yep. the god of death. He was a wolf-headed god of death. The Egyptian jackal is not a jackal at all. Genetics have recently revealed that the Egyptian jackal is actually a small desert wolf and not a jackal. <laughs>
1: Interesting. Well, son say, of a biscuit. Tiny See? desert wolf. This is why we need guests like you, Richard. <laughs> because, because we, we are, are no swimming about in a theology. sea of ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: anyway, we, we've digressed massively. And I was going along this little trail, and I got this smell exactly like a striped hyena. And it was only on a small piece of this trail, as if whatever left that smell had recently crossed the trail and I could smell it. And on the way back the smell had gone. And I set up camera traps there but we didn't get anything. So was it a Tasmanian wolf? I don't know. Yeah. Oh,
1: but it is compelling. Yeah. I mean undeniably compelling. Totally. So th- this is I mean you're you're in the thick of it. You were in the field so often, you're in a lot of these treacherous places. Let's let's dip over to Mongolia because I still yeah. remember reporting on this uh, on the website Mark and I used to run called American Monsters, and uh, when I well, found out, you were, you know, actually... Good. In, yeah, in the field, I was like, oh, I'm so stoked. So tell us a little bit about what you found there.
2: Well, well, of all the places I've ever been to, Mongolia is my favorite. It's just like stepping out into another world. Uh, the Gobi Desert, now you think of deserts as being sandy, and some of them are. and uh, Some of the Gobi Desert are sandy, but It's so variable. There's bits that look like giant cat litter trays stretching off into infinity, all these little bits of gravel. And then there's other bits that are made out of chips of mica, so it looks like a mirror, a huge mirror stretching off into infinity. That's Uh,
1: surreal. That's like that's some Jodorowsky stuff there, like mere deserts.
2: You know, you've heard of mirages in the desert. We saw them. We saw these things that look like cities. And minarets and towers really? uh, in the distance, and it was just an illusion. And we, what oh. looked like legs, and it was just an illusion. And uh, one time we were at a, a remote oasis, and uh, there was a little dust devil building out in the desert. And uh, I pointed out to uh, my friend, and said, Oh, i a dust devil over there. And uh, it was coming closer and closer, and I said, It's getting closer now, isn't it? And we expected it to go around the. Um, Around the other side of the oasis, but it got bigger and bigger and closer and closer, and then suddenly it had into a full fledged tornado, a whirlwind. Um, I remember clinging onto the side of this old ex Russian army vehicle that we had a couple of these that we've taken us to the dinner, clinging onto it and looking up like Dorothy in the <laughs> and seeing one of our drivers 20 feet off the ground being spun round and round clinging onto the shredded remains of a tent oh, jesus wrecked our camp just went through it and in the time I've, told, I've took to tell you this it had gone gone straight through and disappeared back into the desert did the, did the driver survive? yes he survived <laughs> <that>. oh
0: <laughs> jesus thank god I was like I, I know, was, was all now. I was clenching my oh, teeth like what happened? yeah
1: wow Oh
2: my God, that is craziness. Place, an amazing place. And uh, we talked to so many witnesses. And We went for about a thousand miles through the desert and we talked to about two dozen witnesses, some of whom had seen it, some old men who had had seen it back in the 1930s and a guy about my own age who had seen it just a year before. And they were describing something that looked like a salami or a draft excluder. (laughs) sausage shaped brick red thing that... It's hard to tell which end is the tail and which end is the head.
1: Huh. <laughs> kind of like a shingleback.
2: Yeah, most of them saw it lying in the desert and just shit their pants and ran. <laughs> and one guy said he'd seen it as a boy when he was tending to the livestock, and he went and told his parents. They got all their livestock, packed up their gir, which is a circular tent that they have, and just moved out of the area. It can throw a whole area into a panic, the death one. Jeez. So
1: it, it's just it's mere existence obviously has the power to really <sighs> compel people to react in terror. But can you maybe discuss a little bit um, of what the differences are or similarities, whatever you discovered between the legend of the, you know, electrified, venomous Mongolian deathworm and what the actual eyewitnesses and the people that live in the area experienced and, and saw over the years? Right.
2: It's like, uh, it's, it's Mongolian whispers. By the time it, it reaches the West, it's morphed into this monster that's worthy of doing battle with the doctor. Uh, <coughs> yeah. they, it got uh, it could create an electrical blast, like an electric eel, that could kill a full-grown um, camel. But when you actually talk to the people over there, they say that's folklore. They call it throwing lightning. And they say that's folklore. But they do believe that it's poisonous and it can spit, and they're terrified of it. Absolutely terrified of
1: so what, So what, what, in your best estimation, is, is what they're actually dealing with?
2: It's one of two things, I think. It's either an amphisbana, which is a worm lizard. They're a group of sort of sausage-shaped burrowing reptiles. They're not true lizards, and they're not snakes, but they're related to both of them. To be honest, they look like big cocks more than anything Oh, oh there oh, you go. Yeah, yeah. So if you put worm, lizard, put worm lizard into a search engine, and you'll see what I mean. Fair they enough. Like, All right, like well, big, Google that at home. There you go. Big <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. It's an undiscovered one of those, but a large one. Or it's a sand boa. And sand boas are oh, desert-growing, yeah. constricting snakes. They're quite small, also sausage-shaped. But in um, Somalia, in Africa, uh, they're so terrified of the, the, sand, the sand boa they call it an apris they believe it's so poisonous that it doesn't even have to bite you if you touch it you'll die a bit like the they used to think about the salamander in medieval europe but in fact it's completely harmless and i think the same thing has happened with a death worm i think it's a fairly harmless animal i don't believe it can spit poison they say it's a, it spits a corrosive yellow saliva that acts like acid i don't believe a word of it uh, huh. nobody nobody who's reported it ever saw it spitting they believed it could spit they believed it was deadly but nobody ever saw it do that so i think it's this, it's what bernard huyvelman the great cryptozoologist called the, yeah. uh, the um process but like the gorilla they used to say that the gorilla would tear branches off trees and beat elephants to death or go into villages and steal native women to rape um a gorilla's erect penis is about the size of my little finger. It's tiny. Um, of course, gorillas don't do any of that. They're quite gentle animals. But they exist, but they have these legends attached to them because of their cerebral appearance. I think it's something similar to happened with the death rock. Right.
1: That actually makes a lot of sense. That's always been one of the difficulties, because like, like you indicated the first part of the problem, which is by the time the rumors spread to the, the west or whatever direction they're going... Um, they've morphed into something much more incredible and horrifying. But at the same time, even the legitimate um, traditional beliefs might not be based completely on reality. the The creature is real, but the the fears and superstitions that surround it, like you say, like the the mountain gorilla or, or whatever it may be, um, have blown been blown all out of proportion. And I guess that's where the legitimate science part comes in to find, identify, chronicle, and then get the accurate story out.
2: Yeah. but Sometimes the reverse of that happens. (laughs) Example, there's a a big tree frog from South America called the giant monkey tree frog, and the natives used to say, um, the secretions of this frog uh, will make you invisible and it will stop (laughs) you feeling hunger or thirst. When biochemists looked at these secretions, they found it had chemicals in it that would Negate hunger and thirst, and also mask human scent, making you effectively invisible in the jungle. Wow! Oh, okay. That's in New like some... Guinea, in New Guinea, there's a bird called the pitahui, and the locals said it was poisonous. And there was no known poisonous birds. This was scoffed at for years until they, they actually did some tests on the pitahui. When it attacked, pecked, and scratched people, they got terrible rashes, and they found it did have this poisonous secretion in it.
0: You know, the hero shrew. So it's a poisonous bird. Poisonous bird. From we need media. those goddamn Australian cats to take care of that. That's crazy. That's a true. Cats versus poisonous bird. Invisible frogs and poisonous birds. Jesus. So
2: there's a shrew from a Congo called the hero shrew, and it's called the hero shrew because uh, medicine men will take its pelt and wear it on their belts because they think that it infers them with great strength. which so they said that the, the hero shrew, despite being about the size of a mouse, can support the weight of a man on its back. And when they looked at the hero shrew, it's got this weird uh, sort of basket-like network of bones growing out of its spine that makes its backbone incredibly strong. And no other shrews have this, and we don't know why the hero shrew has it, but the natives were right all along.
1: They, they, and that's that's the lesson that I suppose needs to be learned over and over again, that stories of indigenous peoples should not be scoffed, you know, like this sort of a post-colonial attitude of just, you know, they're, they're ignorant, they're, they're, or, and I mean that in classic sense of just ill-informed about zoology. Therefore everything that they're saying about what's going on around them is steeped in, in myth and conjecture when so often, you know, it really is the baseline um, information tablet you need for the fauna of a region. I would be, I would be remiss. I'm I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump around here as I, as I often do, but Loch Ness monster, that was the first thing that fascinated me as a kid. I mean, that was the one that, you know, obviously it gained headlines well before any of us were born. Right. Um, you know,
0: the, the surgeon's photo. You,
1: yeah. And all that stuff. Right. And that's another classic example of, uh, of of something being debunked, I think, on less compelling evidence than than f- it is for the existence. And 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 even though I'm drawing a blank on the name of the guy who did it, the guy who did the debunking actually had a sighting of the monster. So he was trying to say,
2: he said, oh, "I've seen it. I know the Loch Ness monster." But no one wanted to listen to
1: him. Yeah, but 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 this is something near and dear to my heart. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the you know the time you spent there and some of your uh, experiences?
2: Well, I've only briefly been to Loch Ness for a couple of days. It's funny. I've been all right around the world looking for other stuff, but I've only been to Loch Ness for a couple of days. Well,
1: you know what? We always ignore our backyard. Like, we're literally a hop, skip, and a jump from Lake Champlain, and what? yet it's negligible. So I understand that Yeah, completely. we're not going there anytime soon. It like, doesn't happen. But one thing I am curious about. let's let's take you back to Guyana 2007. You, uh, you were there searching for the giant anaconda, the yeah. Didi, which is a yeti-like hominid, and I think most fascinating for me, the water tiger, a spotted semi-aquatic fleshy <coughs> mammal. Mm. Also, uh, for Bushman, uh, an unrecorded race of three-foot pygmies with red faces. So begin wherever you want, okay. but I'm fascinated by yeah, this. Yeah, that sounds interesting.
2: This is the one of the few times we got sponsorship. and We got sponsorship off the games company Capcom. Cause they were releasing a new monster hunter game
0: you, you oh, mean, that's, that's awesome Cap, oh, like, yeah. like capcom that released like street fighter oh uh, i think so i, mean, I don't play yeah. video games myself oh, but, uh, uh, sorry yeah
2: yeah but uh yeah so uh, we went to south america with this guy called damon Corrie, who's a really great guy he's the hereditary chief of the eagle clan arawak tribe and we went over to look the giant anaconda but we had to go in october because that to tie it in with the release of their game and the country was suffering from the worst drought in living memory even the natives the natives said they couldn't remember it being so dry oh. and we we're out on the grasslands we weren't in the jungle we were in the grasslands and It was murderously murderously hot um and i suffered from heat stroke uh, my ass oh. got Torn apart by these things called vine flies that bite you. And uh, my then girlfriend took a photograph of my ass covered in these (laughs) thighs. Like a giant albino irradiated strawberry. (laughs) (laughs) That's fucking terrible.
1: (laughs) You know what? That is a beautiful, beautiful image. A beautifully spoken image, I should
2: say. Oh, we couldn't get out to these remote lakes where the giant anaconda had seen and was seen and damon Corry said that he was told by some hunters he met some native hunters that they'd seen an anaconda so vast that they ran away from it in terror and uh he asked them how long it was and they pointed to a palm tree it was about 30 feet long and he said there was a, a tree about that long lying dead in the water and the, the snake was crawling over it and its head and its tail um stretched beyond the end of this this dead tree so it was at least 40 feet oh, and that's... The, there have been uh claims of uh, kind of 50 60 feet long they call them the the manatora or bull killer because they said that the gauchos would say in the early days that they, they would constrict and swallow fully grown bulls or something yeah
0: uh, jesus that's
2: but we couldn't get out to these remote lakes because the, the rivers were so low because of the drought. Right, right, the drought. So we looked at some <laughs> more local things, and there were stories of this thing called the water tiger, which people insist is not a jaguar. It's different from a jaguar. They say it hunts in packs. It sounds more like some sort of weird otter. Yeah,
1: it's that like, would be my first instinct, too. Sort of yeah. like the Irish Dobarchu there, the, uh, yes, the Irish yeah. crocodile, which always kind of smacked of otter.
2: Yes, well, it is. It's, it's a master otter. Br- the Br- a master,
0: master otter?
1: otter. That sounds pretty. Oh, that sounds master pretty chief. Cool, actually. Yeah. Dude, I would be happy to master be an apprentice otter. otter at this yeah, point. Yeah, totally. You know, no fledgling otter.
2: Totally. To was, the max. In hunting packs, and uh, there was one case of a girl that got killed by one of these things It come out of the water and sort of out. Then uh, lots of people we talked to and seeing these little people.
1: That's the most fascinating to me The Bushmen people, oh my god
2: and they, they, They've got these painted red faces But they're tiny, they're only about three feet tall And Damon Corey himself He said he'd seen one, he was camping out once And one of the things Zip unzipped His tent and looked in And it's sort Ooh. of leering at him but yeah. Lots of other people have seen them And um You do not want to
1: wake up to that You absolutely do not want no, to be In fucking No, you don't want little tiny people looking in your shit. It doesn't even matter the size. What, I guess you just a red face painted love it. stranger popping into your tent uninvited. Yeah, it's weird. That's count Succula Yeah.
2: <laughs> and I uh I also met a real life cannibal. And he was really nice. He's um, a really nice guy.
0: Uh, <laughs> wait wait wait, wait. <laughs> you, you met a, a a real life cannibal and he's a really nice guy?
2: He's a really nice guy. I sat drinking coffee with him on a ranch. Um Ooh, what a coffee. What is that? There was a, a pilot in a plane who crashed up in the mountains. And the pilot's parents sent this man up to find the, see if he survived or if he was dead, to find the body and bring him back. He went up into the mountains, found the site of the plane crash. The guy was dead. So he put him in like a, a big sling, like a blanket, um, tied him up. Put him across his back and started to go back down the mountain but like mists came down and he got lost in the forest and the mountains and he was up there for days and days and days with no food so he had to eat Part of the court. Oh okay. that's legit well, that's right.
1: some Donner Party, you know, soccer yeah, I mean, team in we're the not, Andes. We're not legit. talking
0: like Jeffrey Dahmer cannibal here. We're talking about like I gotta survive. I had a job, yeah.
1: I'm lost. Or eat the brain of your enemy, gain their knowledge. It, exactly. It's a different yeah. breed of cannibalism. So, yeah, like, I mean, it's
0: not like Scandinavian Jesus. death metal cannibalism. No, 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 no.
1: We're not going into Burzum
0: territory here. I but, don't uh, know
2: what I don't know what, what he said to the to the parents when he got down or if he offered just take a shit in the grave or something. No, <laughs> oh, geez, yeah. Oh what are you God. like? Hey,
0: sorry, but uh I had to eat Fred. You know what? Like, I sorry. would blame owls.
1: Blame Whenever there's part Most of the corpse is missing, just blame go owls. To those yeah. damn owls. Yeah, totally. Regardless of whether or not they, you know <laughs> are carnivorous in terms of human corpses. Right. That's not relevant. Yeah, just blame yeah. them. Blame just owls. Blame just blame owls. That's around. just that's my way. Nice. That is absolutely my way. Richard, this has been fucking awesome. I want to tell the folks about some of the amazing books you've written and I am super super stoked uh, about the ones I haven't read yet especially this one the great yokai encyclopedia and a to z of japanese monsters i'm going to i'm bringing this up just because i would love it if you could discuss some of the highlights of this really quick this is just a couple of things we've broken down there's a special pig that's near and dear to my heart
2: <laughs> oh japanese mythology is just so bizarre i don't know where to begin Japanese monsters are just so unbelievably freaky. They include a miniature flaming pig. It's like uh, the human torch from the, the Fantastic <laughs> Four. Johnny it was oh. He was a miniature pig. Uh, this will run between your legs and steal your genital.
0: Whoa. It'll, it, it, uh, it'll steal your uh, dick and balls it's
2: you. It's a dick less. thief.
1: Really? You insta eunuch. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, I that's for, just, I, one. that's just one. That's just one.
2: Murrayu, which is a a giant upright walking humanoid rabbit that digs up corpses and eats their livers. Ooh. Sweet. That's there's, awesome. There's um they're obsessed with hair. So they're obsessed with licking and hair. There's one there's one huh. <coughs> creature that has a great long tongue and it just licks, it goes into houses and licks the ceiling. Oh and then huh. there's, uh, another creature that that looks like Barney the dinosaur if he was possessed by all the demons of hell. Um,
0: <laughs> cool. I like that. That sounds kind of great
2: dope. Chubby, great chubby thing with, with horrible eyes. that comes up behind you and eats your hair. Yep. Yep. a giant killer sea cucumber that grows out of a, a girl's knickers if she throws them into the sea. Whoa.
1: Phenomenal. Okay.
2: And there's a type of of uh, dragon called Mizuchi that lives in a river. Uh, he will shoot his spunk out into the river, and if any women are bathing in the river, they'll become pregnant and have dragon babies.
1: Oh, whoa! Dragon babies. Perfect. Well, uh, nice. I wonder if that'd be qualified uh, as a hybrid species or just a parasite. Yeah, well, really. Or feeding happened? on the womb of humans. <laughs>
2: According to according to legend, how close you are to where he shot his jizz is <laughs> is how how much dragony your baby will be.
1: Science. Yeah, it's pure <laughs> science. <clears throat> oh,
0: that is definitely science. I love that one.
2: The woman oh. is close to where this dragon god Mizuchi has has shot his spunk. Ooh, um, then uh, she'll have a full dragon baby. But if she's further downstream, she'll have like a hybrid dragon, a you know, hybrid baby. Well, yeah, so reptilians come from. That's just a handful of them. There's yeah. so. One that's a, wow. a disembodied horse's tr- horse's head that hangs in a tree and neighs at you and gives you diseases when you walk by. Oh, and diseases. Oh, what I an love
1: asshole! The decapitated it. head. So it's like an excerpt Jesus. from The Godfather, but yeah, really. plague it. Yeah, really. Wow. Yeah. What a fucking nightmare. Yeah, that, that one's a dick. Yeah, that one's a total asshole. You can learn about this and more in the Great Yokai Encyclopedia and A to Z of Japanese Monsters. Some of Richard's other books include Weird Devon, Dragons More Than a Myth. Nice. No. Explore Dragons. Fucking love dragons. Yeah. And, and and I've got to say, I've got to say, Richard is just universally responsible for our modern dragon episode, which is just oh, ast- yeah, that's all the research came from him, right? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah absolutely. I've
2: got a weird story to tell you that wasn't in that.
0: All right, cool, let's hear it. Let's hear it.
2: I've got a friend called Mike Hallowell, and he's more or less retired now due to ill health, but he was a 14 writer and researcher. And close to where he lives in Newcastle in the northeast of England, there is a Bay called Marsden Bay, and in the literally built into the cliff of this bay, and this cliffs are hundreds of feet high. Is a pub called Marsden Grotto, and you have to take a lift or elevator, as you call it in the States. Fucking
1: to get, awesome
2: to get down. I've been in this place to get down to, uh, to to this pub. This pub has got some of the pillars from the ancient Lambton Castle on it that has the Lambton Worm, which was a giant serpentine dragon that in um, the 10th century laid waste to this area of the northeast. Huh. Now the story goes that uh, back in the 18th century, there's a guy called Blasted Jack, and he lived. He he worked in a quarry, and he used gunpowder to uh, blast holes in the ground for for the quarry. And right. When he retired, he built himself this cave by blasting a hole in the in a cliff, and. It, they started a tea room. It was hugely successful. When he passed away, the next guy turned it into a pub. And uh, this, this pub was very successful and it was still there today. Now, Mike said that back in the time of the Dane law, when the, uh, the Vikings were in that part of England, they went in great fear of a sea dragon called the Shoney. And they said that uh, what they would do was draw straws and the person with the shortest straw, they'd be trussed up, their throat would be slit, and they'd throw them over the side of their long ships, so that the shoney would devour them rather than attacking the ship. And they said that this went on and on after the time of the Vikings. It was done by Scandinavian sailors. And these bodies would wash up in Marsden Bay and all along the coast of, of northeast England as far as Lindisfarne. And sometimes the bodies would be half eaten and sometimes not, but they'd always be trussed up with their throat was slit.
1: And it oh, became man. sort of a
2: cult. This thing, where rather than appeasement, it became like a, a cult or a worship. And he said that the last body was found in 1928. And oh, they, used, they used to use the beer cellar of Mars and Grotto as an impromptu morgue to lay these bodies out. And the last one was in 1928. That so is- that's true. There was a dragon worship cult making human sacrifices in the northeast of England in, well into the 20th century.
1: Yeah, no, it, you uh, know, past the first quarter of the 20th dude, fucking century. Dude, this is Skyrim. This is real life dragon Skyrim. Yeah. Holy shit. Ed, oh, my God. Awesome.
2: He said that when he was investigating this, he got threatening phone calls telling him to drop it don't go any Really?
1: Oh, uh, indications what? that the Dragon cult exists oh, to this very oh,
2: yeah and he also claims to have seen this thing. He said he was driving with his family along this cliffside road, and he saw this thing come up out of the water, this great brown hump. And he said he could see it had a long neck and tail under the water. And he said it huh. wasn't a whale or a dolphin or anything like that. And lots of other cars were stopping and, and looking and oh, watching okay. this thing. So oh, do, is, do you know it, a, a time
1: frame it, on that?
2: That would have been about 20 years ago.
1: Hot damn. 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 So we're, we're talking the cusp of the 21st century.
2: Yeah. So he's Dragon more or less retired from Fortean, um research due to ill health. Um, <coughs> but that was one of the strangest stories I ever heard. Oh, it's
0: yeah, amazing. That's, yeah, wow, that's, that's yeah. nuts.
2: Huh. But I've been in some creepy situations myself um when i was, went out to, to look for the almas in russia in the caucasus mountains uh, uh i would staked out this old empty barn this old empty farm rather now there'd been a triple murder on this farm in 1973. Whoa. there was an old guy old couple and the man had got money there one of his relatives wanted the money there was an altercation he got stabbed his wife stabbed the murderer then one of the guy's friends stabbed the old woman made off with the money and got caught by the police ever ever since then it's been closed (laughs) but um shepherds sometimes hang out at this place and about eight years before we were there there was a story that these shepherds were on the veranda and the farmhouse consisted of three rooms and an l-shaped veranda running around it um and one evening the door at the end of this veranda opened and a seven foot plus almasty was there Walked along the veranda, picked one of the men up, just moved him out of the way. He didn't hurt him. Moved him out of the way. Went to the end of the veranda, jumped off, (laughs) ran away, into the into the bush. Um, And we went over there with a Ukrainian biologist called Gregory Panchenko, an archaeologist called Anatoly Serendenko, and Anatoly had seen an almas area, and Gregory had seen an Almasy in another farm. Several miles away, in the nineteen eighties or early nineties, he had seen an almasi, and uh, we decided to stake this place out. So we put camera traps around everywhere, and we put out bait, meat, and fruit, and all sorts of stuff. And uh, Gregory said when he had seen the almasi, it was making a weird sort of twittering noise, like a bird, and a lot of this. Um, who we talked to said the Elmas, he makes this weird twittering noise, and it's uh, not as massive as the Yeti or Bigfoot. It's about seven, seven and a half feet tall. Thick brow ridge, flat nose, long hair, muscular, long much longer hair on the head, but more human looking. Than yeah, that's what I was about
1: to say I've always heard it was more uh, Neanderthal like than necessarily oh. ape
2: like. Well, the Russians had a commission to study this thing. Um, they took it so seriously that they they had a commission, a government commission to study it, and the commission's been re- resurrected recently. But they back in the day they thought it was a a sort of um, relic Neanderthal. But nowadays we know more about Neanderthals, and we know that they were very sophisticated. They had fire, they made great tools, they had clothes and art. And if you got a Neanderthal and washed him and shaved him and put him in modern clothes, he could walk down. Any Western city street, and you might think he was a little bit ugly by our standards, but he'd clearly be a human.
1: But would blend, yeah, and obviously the interbreeding revelation changed everyone's perspective completely.
2: This this thing, the Almasy, is much more primitive. Much, it doesn't use fire. It has primitive tool use, throwing rocks, using clubs. It doesn't doesn't use fire. It doesn't make clothes. So we think it might be an early offshoot of Homo erectus or Homo habilis. <coughs> anyway, uh, another swig of cider. There we go. I haven't started on the meat yet. Anyway, we were staking out this um, old farm. We got the camera traps took the bait out. And uh, I was there with uh, my friend um, Adam Davis. You may have heard of Adam Davis. Of course. So just first rate chat and another great guy uh, called Dave Archer. He was the guy that saw the Orang Pendek. First day in the jungle, first expedition, beginner's luck, see the Orang (laughs) Pendek. Anyway, we'd stake this place out. And uh, about 10 o'clock at night, we were sitting on the the veranda, just listening. I've got my camera there. And I heard a twittering noise like a bird would make, but it was 10 o'clock at night. Dark, birds shouldn't be out. And then one of the camera taps flashes, it goes off. I think, Christ, is that what I think it is? (laughs) Then nothing more happens. Got to about 2.30 and we go inside one of the rooms and we cuddle around a stove because it's getting cold to warm ourselves up. And Dave falls asleep on this manky old mattress in there. And uh, myself and Adam are warming ourselves by the fire. And there's a, a door of about seven feet tall, Going into this room And it's slightly ajar It's about four or four inches ajar And there's moonlight and starlight Coming in <clears throat> And uh, Suddenly from outside There's this deep guttural vocalization That sort of goes bum, 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 But much Ooh. Throatier and deeper Like something has got really big lungs
1: Oh, every, Everyone's up and alert at that point Right? Yeah
2: Dave is asleep Dave's in the land of Nod God but bless I, him I turned to to Adam and I said, did you hear that? And he nods. 25 seconds later, something walks along the veranda, and as it goes past the door, it blocks out the the moonlight and the starlight to a height of seven foot plus.
1: Oh, man. Whoa. It's, It's
2: on two legs. And I said to Adam, there's something out there on the veranda. So we grab our cameras, go running out. All we see is darkness and silence. It's melted back into the night, whatever it was. So we do a circuit of the farm and the outbuildings, but we find nothing. In the morning, we check the camera traps, and all we've got is vegetation moving. So, was it an El Masti? I don't know. Huh.
0: Interesting.
2: It wasn't a, it wasn't a S- bear. Right. Yeah. Seriously. It was too tall to be a man, but it moved fast and silent. Whatever oh, it weird. was. It's
1: compelling. I mean, yeah, the, totally. The, the, it's something that's It can be a big
2: I'd be what? a big fat liar, I'd be, a, I'd be a conservative, a big fat fucking liar. <laughs> Fair Ish. enough. Ish.
1: Fair enough, man. You know what? Like I say, I have been a fan for years. I think I I think I first saw you, Richard, in like the mid-2000s on History's Mysteries. And, and you know what? I've really been a follower of your, your career and your exploits. And we really, really thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And, oh, and I absolutely. want to encourage... Everyone to to do what you can to read richards books because they are really Amazing
0: yeah totally richard can you tell okay. us about the uh, book you have coming up On uh may 31st
2: yeah yeah it's um well what i was gonna say is i'll, I'll be a big Fat liar if i said i saw a, a, an almas because i didn't i saw something on two legs go past this
1: totally which is what makes you legitimate and not, it, not, not like a, a Stargazing true believer or a damn fool you're a scientist out there and citizen scientists you know i know it's part of the 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 cfc's uh you know i don't know if it's mission statement but part of you know what you guys celebrate is the you know the idea of darwin on up and people going out and you know uh finding out what's going on in the natural world that that you know maybe aren't Fully accredited, but are absolutely curious and intelligent. And, and you know, we thank you is, so much
2: for, you know, sharing th- these stories. Well, the weird thing is that so few people are interested. I went recently, I went to Tajikistan to, to look for a, a hominin called the Ghoul, locally called the Ghoul. And whilst we were there, lots of reports of this, this hominin, but also reports of the Caspian tiger, which was supposed to have been extinct since the late 60s, early 70s. Right. And even from a, a park ranger had seen one of these things and watched it for about five minutes, and that was just a month before we got there. Loads of people said they'd seen it. Definitely wasn't a leopard or a... Identified it from pictures they said that had livestock taken by it. Um, people had seen them with cubs. And I wrote all this up when I got back to England and sent it out to every single tiger conservation group I could find. And the silence was deafening One just, got back That to is me.
1: such a fucking tragedy
2: One got back to me and said This is interesting but we only deal with a Siberian tiger So Ridiculous. if there's any chance That the Caspian tiger is still around You would think that tiger conservation groups Would be all over it It's, no. it's unbelievable
1: to me That if it's not You know de facto People, people shy away from it as if it's somehow st- As if you're like chasing peanut butter elves or some ridiculous dumb shit peanut butter elves yeah peanut butter elves is the first thing i could come up with my favorite salad no when you have legitimate uh compelling reason to look into something that is bona (laughs) fide and you ignore it simply because it's not convenient or you think you might be pooed by your peers you're just a puss
2: the thing is i don't get paid for this it's all out of my own pocket and i risk my life doing it you see (coughs) and
1: Right. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Totally. You know, it's, it's, it's passion hey, and dedication.
2: Oh, no, nobody's, nobody's interested. I've been trying to get television interested in this for years, for years and years and years. And we get people say, we want to do this, we want to do that. And then they go away. You never hear from them again. Or they say, oh, we, we won't finance this expedition unless you can guarantee that we'll find the creature
1: yeah, like that's yeah. even possible scientifically. Yeah, you can't
0: guarantee that. And yeah, I hear you on the uh, the TV tip. Robert and Christopher and I have been uh, just strung along by producers and networks and networks and executives and sci- the Sci Fi Channel and MTV for years. So yeah, it's, it's, it's I, been I, a I, fun I, couple of It's a part of the game, actually. It's just it's, it's how you got to play the game.
2: Research stolen as well. I've had my research stolen. Yeah, um, back same when I was here. That when I was a student. I was um, contacted by this company called Cicada Films, and they said, we do this series called to the End of the Earth, which is about exploration. We hear you're interested in the Tasmanian wolf. You want to get an expedition together. Um, we'd like to finance an expedition and film it. And I said, great, that would be brilliant. So I went all the way from Leeds to London, which is several hundred miles. Right. Tell these people everything I knew about the Tasmanian wolf, where to look for it, what to do what not to do who to contact them. and then i did it all again a second time and they oh, said Jesus. oh yeah we'll just got to check with some people in australia and then it should be all systems go and i get this letter saying oh the producer said there's too many men in this uh, series he wants a pretty girl to do it instead so they sent this pretty empty-headed girl instead of me and used my research bunch of coxswains
1: yeah, no, Ooh, we have. That, I, I that think, is the story of mass yeah, media. Television yeah, production the, is a cesspool.
0: Yeah, I think MTV saw the three of us and was like, these guys aren't going to work. We need somebody else. So, But, Richard, thank you so very much for uh, joining us for this episode of the Kryptonaut Podcast. Presents oh. Evil Science and Magic Buddies. Uh, and again, where can people find your book, uh, which is being released on May 31st? In the uh, United States
1: yeah. and mid-June in the UK.
2: Okay. Yeah. Just go on to. Um amazon and put in adventures in cryptozoology and you can pre-order it
0: oh perfect yeah we will put a link to that in the description of this episode that way people can easily click in their podcast player and link right to it
1: i can't wait to read it
2: if you ever want me back after i've done another expedition maybe i'll totally come back and talk again
1: oh awesome it would be our pleasure man thank you so much for taking the time honestly uh, we really appreciate your work and thank you
2: thanks lads and it's a great podcast stumbled over it completely by accident just saw the uh, the logo the robot monster logo i thought
1: What's oh yeah. yeah yeah totally. it was fortuitous and thank you man thank you for the kind words and thank you for all your work totally all right richard thank you so much
0: and again uh crypto podcast crypto uh itunes ratings and reviews leave them there Uh, We got the the twitters, Facebook. Check us out there and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Richard, thank you again. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Cheers.